All right, let's let us get started. Um, just a quick reminder: we are recording these. Um, there have been a number of people that, uh, unlike apologetics, where everybody came because apologetics is is like the theological or systematic theology version of Revelation. It just brings everybody out of the woodworks because I think apologetics is everyone wants to learn how to argue well. Um, so that's a, always a popular class. Um, so we have, there's fewer of us to study the Trinity, though faithful few that you are, there are others that just can't come. And so this is just a reminder that if you go to the Sunnybrook website, and on the far right side of the page there's media, um, down in our teaching archive, these will be in there. So I'm just recording them on my phone. That will do a fair job, I think, of picking up some of the things you guys say. I'll try to repeat them, but... Um, just a reminder that should you need to miss, you can go in and listen to it. Um, one other thing, um, especially for those of you that weren't able to be here last week, is uh, on our approach to the Trinity. Um, we are going to. Sp- we spent last week talking about why it's important, and I hope that we were able to lay out a few reasons why studying the Trinity is important. Um, today, we're going to be building our vocabulary. And, uh, and aside from maybe Anthony and Hope, um, <laughs> some of you might look at this and say, wow, this seems like a, a, a bit of a boring task for us today. But, and that may be so. But the, the reason, now we're not going to have to memorize all of these words. But there are a number of them that your familiarity with them will kind of um, be cr- pretty critical in terms of understanding what we're going to be talking about the rest of the class. The word person is going to come up over and over and over. And we need to understand how that word is used in the Trinitarian realm. Essence, nature, these are, these are very critical words. Modalism, adoptionism. Um, tritheism versus monotheism and unity. There's going to be a number of these ideas that we just really can't have conversations about the Trinity without using these words. And so I want to spend some time tonight going through some of the more critical ones. We're not going to go through every single one of them. I gave you more than we need. Um, But we do need to have a working understanding. Think of this as if you're going to do much work in the realm of of chemistry, there is a periodic table of elements that must be dealt with. You really can't be a chemist and and push such basic information to the side. There is a common language that we're all going to work from, and so that's kind of what we're doing tonight. And then we'll close tonight by talking about everybody's favorite thing to do with the Trinity, that is talk about the Trinity by way of analogy. And, uh, and, I, and I'm going to do my best to do a number of things, to discuss the various analogies that are most popular and, and to not necessarily <coughs> discourage their use, but to probably put some limits on them. Because you'll see rather quickly, I, I've never encountered, I've done plenty of reading over the years and there's more for me to do, but um, I, I'm fairly well versed in this particular discipline. I've never seen an analogy work. They just don't exist. We're talking about something that's infinitely complex. And there's an analogy. It doesn't mean that they're not useful. They just don't work. And, there's a, and, and we'll talk about how they can be, to some degree, helpful, but incredibly limited at the same time. So let us pray 
to open our time together. Let's beseech the three persons deity and uh, ask him to be with us. Ask them, him, all of them to be with us tonight. God, we are um, exceedingly grateful that you gave us minds and that you thought it fit to reveal yourself to us and that you gave us the ability to reason. And, uh, and at the same time, you've asked us to remain humble and to recognize who we are relative to you. So I pray that with those things in mind, our study would be fruitful. And, uh, and with those things in mind, that our study would be worshipful. Teach us who you are. Um, instill in us an ever-growing sense of wonder and awe. And, uh, and comfort us with your bigness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Can't even pray without being Trinitarian. Um, let's first establish a few critical um, things that, that, that kind of sit in front of all of this business. Um, one of the reasons that we're going to, you're going to see a number of these, these words um, or these movements or these systems of thought are labeled heresy. Uh, which means, by definition, there are right and wrong things to think in this area. And one of the things that we, we hold dear, and one of the things that we will be absolute slaves to, is the primacy of Scripture. That is one of the fundamental ideas behind who we are as followers of Jesus. We look at the Bible, 66 books, as God's revelation of himself, as his inerrant word. If you go to Sunnybrook, if you, if you hear how we talk about the Bible, and I'm assuming that just about everybody in this room agrees with this idea, the Bible is true. And because it's true, and because it is spirit-breathed, it is, even when it appears to be in tension with itself, all true. And therefore, and when we come to propositions in Scripture, when we come to God speaking about Himself, revealing Himself to His creatures, it's all true, even when it seems to conflict with itself. And so one of the big things that we have to keep at the forefront when we study the Trinity is the Bible gets the last say in just about everything that we're about to do. And so from Scripture we have um, three big ideas that may on the surface appear to be in tension or in conflict with themselves. But these three ideas are going to be um, their, their truthfulness, their threefold truthfulness, um, kind of set the stage for why we have a long list of heresies because it's complicated to hold these three things together. But they are, one, God is three persons. Um, there's a, we, we're going to spend time over the next five weeks after tonight, heads down in the scriptures, investigating whether or not these claims are actually true, that um, at first God is three persons. So the first 39 books of your Bible, it's quite clear that there is a God, that there is a, a sovereign over the universe, that there is some sort of supreme creator deity. And uh, the Jews were famous for the first um, millennia of their existence for being very bad monotheists. They were not good at it, but they believed it. Okay, so there was one God, that's the great Deuteronomy 6 text. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's one God. 
and he is to be worshipped, and he alone is to be worshipped. And Israel is very bad at that. And they had to get a couple of divine spankings from Assyria and Babylon for them to figure that out. And then they were very good at being monotheists. They, in some ways, they overcorrected so much so that they could not entertain the idea that Jesus himself was God. Um, but you have this idea that there is a, a God that transcends all other powerful beings, whether they're human or spiritual. But then... Um, this rabbi starts walking around in the first century. And he convinces a number of people that God is now at least two persons. Jesus convinces a, a many, many people to worship him. He says, uh, he says in, uh, in John 10, um, I and the Father are one. We've now moved from monotheists to at least bi-theists. Or duo theists. I don't even know what the term is. But when Jesus is walking around, he says in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he never insinuates that, that he is the Father. He never claims that, that the, the throne room of heaven is somehow vacant while Jesus is incarnate walking around. So the, the first four books of the New Testament and the first chapter of Acts um, expands our understanding of God. We've now gone from one God to at least a multi-personed God. To a God the Father and a God the Son system. But if you'll recall in John 16, he says, and by the way, it's going to be really helpful for you. When I leave, I'm going to send the helper. And Jesus never says that I'm going to send like some sort of useful sub-deity sub spirit. It's going to be like God himself indwelling you. And we see this happen in Acts 2. And so we go from one God to a multi-personed God to a three-personed God by the time we get to the book of Acts. And I would say you see it quite a bit in, in the Gospels as well. And then the rest of the New Testament is Paul and Peter and James and John arguing for and testifying um, to the truth that God himself has revealed himself as both Father, Son, and Spirit. We have a three-person to God. That is a biblical truth. We will investigate that in a few weeks um, in the scriptures. We also have this truth that stands... Yes? That's over there real quick. Yep. You know, you might be wondering, so why didn't God just tell us that in the beginning? Which is a great question. Like, why didn't he just tell us that in the beginning? And I think one of the reasons why, again, we have to theologize about this, is that until we know the fullness of who Christ is, it really doesn't help us to know. <laughs> so there's almost no way that we can know. So if he said, hey, by the way, I actually exist in Father, Son, and Spirit, without Jesus coming onto the scene, without the incarnation, we, that doesn't, it actually doesn't even make sense. And so there is the, the concept of progressive revelation, that God reveals more of himself kind of as we as we as, as humanity begin to um, experience the fullness of God's plan. And so even the spirit, they're like, oh, this is what the Old Testament prophets meant, or oh, this is what. And so I think that's really kind of fascinating. And I, I don't know if you're going to get, are you going to get into the Elo and Elohim tonight? Uh, I can, if you want to go for it. Well, no, I'm just going to say, it's really interesting that El is the word for God. Uh -huh. Elohim is the word for God's. And 
Elohim, as you probably know, that's the name of God, right? And it is actually the plural of God. Now, in Hebrew, the plural is also the superlative, like the goddess, the biggest god. And so Elohim has this com complicated plurality, possibly, or the bigness perfection. Plurality of majesties. Yes, plurality of majesties. And I, it's fascinating to just go back and go, huh. Yep. Like, it just That says something to me, that even the name of God has in it a hint of the greatest and a plurality kind of simultaneously. So, so if you go back and you, you look at the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, you start to see God describing himself as we. Mm -hmm. Now, without the revelation of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit, you could just say, wow, he's really impressed with himself. He keeps talking about himself in these exaggerated plurality of majesty terms. But it's a lot like whenever you watch one of those really, really well-written movies that in the last scene, it unlocks everything and you have to go watch it again. <laughs> because, oh, 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 I see what you were doing there. All that stuff was always there. It was just, I did not have the capacity to comprehend it. So it's like um, one of my favorite movies. Yeah, The Sixth Sense is one of those. One of my favorite movies that does that is Inception. I wanted to go back and watch it immediately right after I kind of saw the end of that movie. And there's a number of movies where, um, and even books, where I see how I, once I finally get the whole thing tied up in a bow, now I want to go and see and watch how masterfully they wove that through the whole time, even if I wasn't catching it the whole time. So when Jesus shows up, we get a better understanding of Psalm 2, of Psalm 22. We get a better understanding of when he says that one greater than Moses will one day come. When we get a better understanding of the Davidic covenant when Jesus shows up. All these things had their rightful Old Testament meanings in their kind of immediate fulfillment. And then Jesus shows up and we're like, oh wow. God, there was a lot more to what you said than we were ever able to understand. But now that we have Jesus, we can go back and, and I know this, this, like this idea can, can concern some of us. We can reinterpret scripture now with the New Testament imagination and the interpretive key. So when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, we go back and we read Ezekiel 36. Oh, that's what you meant whenever you said that I will give them my spirit. And so um, all this stuff is kind of progressively revealed. But by the time you get to, again, the first few books of the New Testament, all the cards are down on the table. The rest of it is just commentary. on. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John lay this out. Acts describes how this affects the church. And then the book of Romans to the book of Revelation comment on those four books and apply these truths. But we have three guides. And if Jesus is divine, then he's allowed to do that. Like, it's not a prophet that comes along and does that. It's not Moses that does that. It's not St. Paul. It's, Ye it's Yeshua or Joseph. It's Jesus who comes along and says, hey, let me explain this to you. This is how I have been working. So he can do what he wants. <laughs> Jesus gets to play whatever card he wants. <laughs> the second biblical idea that we must hold to. So this, we can't, we can't jettison this. In all of our endeavors to explain the Trinity, this has to hold. The second one that must also hold is that each person is, and this is complicated, fully God. Each one is fully God. When, when, when the occasion rises in the New Testament narrative, 
where Jesus is, for whatever reason, worshipped by mankind, Jesus never tells them to stop. He accepts their worship as if he is God himself. He speaks with the authority of God himself. The Spirit like, resurrects Jesus and raises the dead in the book of Acts. The Spirit speaks and breathes as if it's God himself. They are fully God. And, there, and this is where, again, like systematics matter. Um, because uh, the, the study of, of theology and theological ideas, as they relate to one another, it's very, very critical. Because they can't each be partially God, because now you've torn down the idea of God. Think of, think of your, your theology of what is a God. It is the most powerful, most irreducible thing in existence. Which by definition means there can only be one. And God the Father is God. And Jesus the Son is God. And the Spirit is God. There can only be one. And you have three persons accepting the worship that they are or, or taking the role or the office of God himself. Which brings us to the last one. There is only one God. Logically, this one, uh, I, I don't even necessarily need a, a Bible to get to this conclusion. This is just good reasoning skills, although the Bible speaks to this ad nauseum. The, the New Testament speaks to this, and I would say that the whole Council of Scripture speaks to this. So we have three biblical ideas, and remember, our, uh, again, our, our theological ideas have to stay in, uh, integrated with one another. The Scriptures are true. And this, they are breathed out by the Spirit of God. And therefore we hold to the, to the whole counsel of Scripture that they are true. So now let's talk about the Trinity. And, and you'll see quickly that just about every attempt to pin down the Trinity, you have to fudge on one of these. And the Bible just really doesn't allow that. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through some very important terms, and again, not all of them, but a, a growing familiarity with these ideas will serve you well as you try to study through the scriptures and, and, and recognize who the Trinity is. These are some of these words the church even had to make up. Now, you're going to see that there are a number of terms that um, mean the same thing, and here's the problem. We are dealing with this concept, the concept of the Trinity, the, the church has dealt with these primarily in Greek, in Latin, and in English. And so you're going to see we have a, a number of ideas that have three, two or three terms that mean the same thing. And, and you'll, you'll hear them thrown around and where the synonyms start to be confusing. Let's just remember, we're talking about the same idea. So um, uh, the first one I want to talk about is analogy. I, I initially thought that I would put these in order of importance or value, but I just thought, I'm not going to ask you to go to page 7, line B. It's just, let's keep them in alphabetical order. But let's talk about analogies. Um, we're we're going to go over four of the more common analogies uh, at the end of our time tonight. But um, it's interesting that, I, you know, I, I quote I've, every other class I teach, it seems I quote A.A.B. Tozer because his... The book that I read most recently by him has just been so profound, and, and some of you have even ordered it because of how much we talk about it. But 
He makes an interesting claim in the early chapters of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, that the only way that mankind can even talk about God is by analogy. God is so distinct from his creation. He is so, it doesn't mean that he's far off and he's remote, but he is so transcendent above us that the only way we can even talk about him is in partial references. Because to be able to to describe him um, precisely and with kind of a full accuracy would put us above the transcendent line. We just can't do it. So we have to, we have to speak in analogy. We can't, there is no, um, the, the English language cannot even come close to describing God. So everything we say is by definition analogy. Now analogy is important. Um, so it's a, and by the way, these are not definitions that I wrote. I, I grabbed them from a number of sources and then I modified them at, at, in some sense, but these are not all Ryan's ideas. Um, but I'll take, I'll take credit for all the spelling errors. Um, an analogy is a comparison between a known reality and another both similar yet different. So analogy is neither equivocal, meaning it's like the, you can't just interpret how these things relate as best as you would like. The, the, the person who's giving the analogy is in some sense controlling the comparison. Um, and, but neither is it univocal. When we say God is like water, the triune God is like water, we're not saying he is water. We're saying there's something about God that is similar to the three states of water. And... When we get to our analogy section, you'll see, no, there's not. But that is, uh, that is in some sense helpful. But it, we can't say that it's, well, he's like water because God is wet. No, you've lost the, the point of the, the analogy. You've now gone into crazy and you're just hearing what you want to hear. No, when I say God is like water, I'm saying he exists in three states. That's what my analogy, three different states. That's what my analogy is attempting to communicate. But it is neither... Uh, equivocal or univocal. Um, I love this last line from this, this definition that I found. It says, theologically, analogy is human language employed to speak of that which reflects divine reality, which is a wonderful little humbling line. All human language talking about their divine realities is analogy. Um, the second word on this page I want us to see is the very next one, anthropomorphism. Um, and this is, and you can, you can even write beside this, because this isn't a separate entry in your glossary for this class. Um, you could write the condescension of God um, beside anthropomorphism. Because God actually, in his interaction with us, has to speak in a lot of anthropomorphisms. So whenever he talks about his finger, does God have a finger? Does God the Son did when he became incarnate and he will forevermore but in his essence and there's a word we need to get to quickly but in his essence in the core of his being God is spirit he is not physical when God makes his face shine upon you does he actually have a face he's just using language that's helpful for you God does not have a face and that can be a little complicated for, um, or, or at least that, that tests us if, if we've grown up with the, the uh, elderly gentleman with a giant white beard picture of God. He does not have a face. 
He does not have a body. He doesn't have a beard. He's spirit. Now, look at some of these, these examples. Um, in Exodus 32 or 33, I can't remember which chapter it actually takes place in, but when God is having a conversation with Moses on the mount, uh, on Mount Sinai, and he's like, hey, have you seen what your moronic Israelite friends are doing down there? They built a calf, they called it Yahweh, and now they're having a little festival. And it's absolutely shameful. I'm actually going to kill them all, start over with you. 32. Um, Exodus 32. God tells Moses, I'm killing everyone that I brought out because of what they've done is just exceedingly wicked. Moses pleads with him to, to maybe we shouldn't do that. Could, you, could, could, I, could I beseech you to show your wonderful mercy? And then it says that God repents and doesn't destroy them. Now, does God, like, repent in the sense that we understand repentance? Did he have to turn and change his ways from a sinful direction to a righteous one? Of course not. This is why we're theologians. We keep other truths in check to not let us run rampant. Of course he didn't. He doesn't have any sin to repent from. But it's, it, what God is doing is he is condescending to our level and saying, um, I, I really cannot explain to you the fullness of what's going on up here, of what, how, what it's like to kind of manage the universe. So um, in your little words, in your, your, tiny, your, your tiny little world, Moses, it would be like as if I'm repenting. That's, that's how, let's, let's just describe it like that. Write that down, Moses. Let's, let's let everyone read that one for the rest of eternity. But that's, he's just using English language to help us out. And of course he didn't repent. At least not in the sense that we can understand it. So when we see a lot, I think a lot of Trinitarian difficulties go, uh, or, or they, they bubble to the top because we're asking God to play by human, by human rules. The, the logical inconsistency of, of being three and one, 100% God, yet three persons, you do know that that's a, that, that's a human logical problem. I promise if you're the creator of all math systems and you're the creator of all forms of logic, you're allowed to violate it as much as you want. And so that's God's prerogative. But when we look at it as a logical contradiction, maybe we should say, instead of, well, the Bible must be wrong, or God is a fraud, or whatever you might uh, uh, accuse him of doing, a, a more humbling posture is, is probably appropriate, where we say, Maybe there's something going on here that I can't hope to comprehend because God is so much greater than I am. So whenever we, we run into problems, it's usually because we're asking God to play human uh, by our rules and, and our concepts. Um, the next one on this, the last one I want to talk about on this front page is probably the most important um, major heresy um, or the most common one that you'll see when you study the Trinity, that is Arianism. Uh, many of you have heard of the Nicene Creed, um, one of the more famous crazy of the Apostles' Creed would probably be one of the earliest ones. The Nicene Creed would be next. The, the Chalcedonian Confession would be next um, in terms of kind of prominence. And then there are others that come later on. But these are some of the earliest um, uh, documents that church leaders from around the Mediterranean region came together to to establish and decide some formal ways of articulating biblical doctrine. And the Nicene Creed was written to, um, in part, to confront 
the Arian controversy. So Arianism <coughs> is a belief based on the teachings of the 4th century theologian Arius, which maintained that Jesus Christ was the highest of all created beings. Look at how it's already starting to break down. We believe that Jesus is a member of the Godhead. Therefore, he cannot be created. He must have always existed. Eternal existence in both directions. He's the highest of all created beings. Similar but not equal in nature to God the Father. Thus the Son is considered a small g God, but not consubstantial. We'll get to that word. Well, the two important words in this, in this definition that we'll get to in a second is uh, nature and consubstantial. Um, basically, Arianism said, we are going to, on, the, on the, the list of biblical ideas, we're going to defend this one at all costs. Even if it means we got to toss these two. Do you see how most heresies, you, you'll see, I think, um, as we walk through some of the bigger heresies, they're usually well-intentioned. Heretics really aren't malicious, and every good heresy that's even remotely believable actually comes from Scripture. And what it does is you start to pit biblical idea against biblical idea and say, well, there is only one God. Therefore, Jesus can't be fully God. At best, he attained some sort of godliness um, at his resurrection would be how Arius would describe it. And so he was a created being who became a higher state of being somewhere between the real God and humanity. There's Jesus. He's powerful, but he's not, he's not co-equal with God. He is not of one substance with God. And the church comes together at Nicaea and says, um, that's not what the Gospels teach. And, and someone, even as a, some sort of higher quality of human um, some sort of um, third, I don't know, species that has attained some sense of divinity but is not fully God, I don't know that he could do what Jesus did. And I don't know that like good Orthodox Jewish men and women would bow down to that person and worship that person. So Arianism is well-intentioned, trying to uphold the unity of God, the singularity of God, but it, it tosses out the plurality of God. And so um, you'll see probably, I would say this is the, the most prominent Trinitarian heresy um, as you read through um, various uh, books or, or any sort of information on the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Hey, yes? So when I was here in came in 2004, a guy who read John's Gospel, and I was describing what you just taught. And a guy came into my office, he was an older gentleman, had been part of our church for a number of years, and he sits down, I thought he was joking with me, and he said, so you're telling me Jesus was God? And I'm like, uh, yeah? <laughs> and he was like, so not like a God, like he was God. And I literally am looking at him like, is this a joke? And he, had ne he, he swore to me he had never heard that before. And he had been here at this church for a number of years and was deeply offended that I somehow was saying that Jesus was, in fact, God, as we were preaching through the I Am statements in, in John's Gospel. And he, he knew of Ozark really well. And I'll never forget it because he looked at me and he said, okay, well, you used to teach at Ozark. 
do they believe that there? And I'm like, hey, listen, this has been around since <laughs> like the Nicene Creed. I mean, and he, would, he, he and so he started like mentioning like guys that were like my, my mentors. Does Lynn Gardner believe that? And I'm like, yes. Like I would have been fired if I didn't. And he never, he never got over that. And he, he was basically an Aryan. And my father, as, as good as he can be, my dad is bad at this theology. And my dad can be somewhat Aryan. And if he goes to hell, he goes to hell. But I mean, that's the that's my dad's issue. You know, if I if I were to if I were to 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 find what is a common symptom of people who struggle with an Aryan idea, it's a deep, deep, deep love of the Old Testament. Yeah, they love it, and they, and like a good Jew, Jesus comes along and they don't know what to do with him, and so they want to put him in this kind of purgatory between God and humanity. I don't know. He must be really, really awesome. May, I'll even grant that he could be. He could have been sinless. But to, it, like he's God, like he's the one who was, you know, setting sacrifices on fire on top of Mount Carmel. That's Jesus. Yeah, that's the one. That's just that's hard for some people. Yeah. It sounds like blasphemy to them. It does. Yeah, it does. Um, turn to page two, and uh, and we'll, we won't we won't linger long over many of these. I do want to hit the high points, but consubstantial is an important one. Um. This one's great because this is um, this is the English version. So again, uh, Trinitarianism. This this debate has been hashed out in so many languages, and there are so many lingering artifacts from old languages. We have Greek, Latin, and English. And uh, if you were to really do a deep dive into systematics, you'd see how frustrating it is that half of this is in French and German too. Um, but consubstantial is the English translation of the Greek word homoousios which means of one and the same substance or being. And this is the word that the Nicene Creed used. This, this is the word that the Nicene Creed, Creed hung on because what they were trying to uh, express. And they have to, again, the church, the, the, you're like, well, this is interesting because I don't see these words in the Bible. Uh, you don't. The church is inventing language along the way to explain what the Bible was teaching. And so the the big debate at Nicaea was, is Jesus of the exact same substance as the Father or of a similar substance as the Father? And so you know the, the, uh, the common phrase, whether or not it makes an iota of a difference? That's from this argument. That's from this, this debate right here. Was it homoousius or homoousius? And, and homoousius is, uh, I think it's in here. Yes. yes, it's at the bottom. It's the Aryan version of it that says Jesus is like God, but he's not God. And homoousius, like homogenous, he is one with God. Um, Jim's middle son, Mackenzie, um, he got the entire Nicene Creed tattooed on his back. His um, mom let him do it. His mom let him do it. And he wanted it. He wanted it in Greek as it was written. He wanted it because I was working on it for him. He wanted it in a, a font as close to 4th century Greek as possible, which is very difficult to find, by the way. And so it's, it's literally from like the, the bottom of his neck down to um, like the small of his back. Just Greek text. 
And, uh, and I told him, because I, I worked on it for quite a while, and I proofread it and proofread it and proofread it. I had Jim proofread it. I told him, dude, if we get this wrong, you're a heretic. And so, <laughs> I told him, I circled, I circled homoousius, and I said, you make sure there is not an iota in this word. Because I drew it, and I, there's sometimes where I'm too close to it, I can't see my own mistakes. Make sure we got the right word in there. So. Um, I've seen it. It looks good, and uh, and Mac is orthodox, but it's a big deal. It is a big deal because what are you saying if you if you deny that Jesus is of the same substance, of the exact same substance as God? If you say he's of similar substance, you're just saying that he is a powerful deity. You could even go so far as to say that he is a dueling, like there's like he's a second God. And again, you've now unraveled the concept of God. Homoousius is necessary to maintain that Jesus is one of the three persons of the Godhead, that he is fully God himself, and that there is only one God. He is of the same substance. So consubstantial is the idea that that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are all of the very same substance or essence. Um, Let us let's let's skip right down to the bottom of that page and go straight to essence. So you can see the Greek word for essence is usia. The Latin word is um, substantia. So back up to consubstantial, you can see why the word essence is so important. The, the essence of something is the requisite fundamentals that constitute a static reality, okay? So weird, weird way of putting it. In theology, The divine essence denotes that which constitutes the basic nature, substance, or fundamental character of the divine being, i.e. the godness of God. When you get down to his very core of his being, and you cannot reduce God any further, there you found his essence. And Trinitarian thinking would say that Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father share that singular essence. There's not three of them. That's where the unity of God is upheld. That's where the monotheistic side of Trinitarian um, theology is held in check. They share a single essence. There is not three gods. There are not three gods. There is, there is one singular essence. And that essence is, exists in three persons. And, and if, if, that, if you're breathing a little deeply, you can see how just complicated it gets. And again, we're not, we're not even making like logical assumptions. These are biblical truths. And now they've had to come up with some new language to help articulate it, but these are, the, these are theologians doing their best to hold these three things as simultaneously true. Um, I do want to make sure that we have time to get to the analogies themselves. So um, flip it on the back. The filial quay clause, we will talk about that when we get to doctrinal development. Um, maybe, I don't know who's teaching on the development of the Trinity through the Gospels, but that's where that comes from. It comes from John, uh, John 16, whether or not, um, uh, and, and actually it goes well with the word right below, below it, generation. Who sends the Son and the Father? Who sends the Spirit? Does the Son send the Spirit or does the Son and the Father send the Spirit? It's this, it's this goofy, goofy argument that I don't think needed to be had. And it caused, like the argument over that, over that concept caused this, the greatest split in church history. 
So if you think like, wow, denominations split all the time. Imagine if they split like in continents. That's what happened in 1054, the Great Schism, and they were arguing over this idea. And the, West, the, the Western Church had its own idea. The Western Church actually went more modalistic, which we'll talk about in a second. The Eastern Church had their idea, and they went more tritheistic. And so we'll talk about both of those, modalism and tritheism, here in a second. Um, but we will come back to the filioque clause and the generation of both the Son and the Spirit when we get into the New Testament. Homoousius, we've already talked about that. Um, hypostasis, we will talk about that um, again when we get into the New Testament text. Um, eminence. This is, a, this is an important thing for us to, to pause and talk about. Um, we can all agree that God is himself transcendent. He exists altogether apart from his creation. He, is, um, he cannot be bound by his own creation. So if it, if it exists and it's not God, then it is separate from him in some sense. So God is not, um, he's not held um, prisoner to the concepts of space or matter. Those things don't affect him. And the, probably the one that is, is, uh, is uh, most jarring to most of us is, like, you, you didn't know, like, he, he does not have to follow the rules of time. He created time. He exists outside of time. God only experiences time because he chooses to. It doesn't affect him. Um, the, probably the, the most accurate way to describe how God experiences time is he exists in the, um, the ever-present, like, singular moment of all of existence. So if you ask, what, where is God now? Well, he is simultaneously at the creation of the universe. He is also at the giving of the law. He's also at the crucifixion of Jesus. He's also at the end of time when all things will be set right because, well, that, that hasn't happened yet. Well... We haven't experienced it yet. And no, it hasn't happened yet. But God does not experience time. He exists outside of it. Do you think that he would be, like, that, that he cannot be in the future? And that, that blows people's mind. Um, but, so, like, there's the concept of his transcendence. And then there's also his eminence. This is what I love. One of the most worshipful things about God is that he draws near. He is I don't know how you qualify how distinct he is from us. Infinitely, I guess is the only way you say it. He is infinitely distinct from us, and yet he draws near. And he's close. And he put on flesh. It's about as imminent as it gets. He takes up residence in the, um, in the hearts and minds of his followers. That's, that's about as imminent as it gets. Trying to pin down what God is like is just complicated, impossible. <clears throat> Um, but eminence is also another way to talk about the relationship inside the Trinity. So the eminent Trinity, this is um, uh, the view that centers on the Trinity in and of itself as present only to itself. A view occasionally expressed in Scripture, so you can see this in the first chapter of John. Um, there are these internal relations between Father, Son, and Spirit that the, the Bible will on occasion give us glimpses into. This, um, this mutual um, affection for and service for and um, the, the, the Spirit's affinity for the Son and diverting attention to the Son and the Father's love for the Son 
and the Son's obedience to the Father. We get to see all these inter-Trinitarian relationships. And, uh, and when the Bible cracks that, that open and, and, and tells us something about the, the experience of inside the Godhead, that's the imminent Trinity we're talking about. Um, we skipped it, but you can go back to the page before and read about the economic Trinity, which is how the Trinity, if, if the imminent Trinity is a way of describing how they interact with one another, the economic Trinity is describing how the Trinity interacts with its creation. I promise that this is, a lot of these things will start to make a lot more sense when we have to apply them to actually studying the scriptures or studying church history. Uh, page four, modalism would be a subset of monarchianism, which we'll talk about monarchianism at another date, but modalism is another prominent, prominent heresy. I would argue if you are currently a, a well-intentioned heretic in this room, you're a modalist. This is the one that we all default to. This is the Western view of the Trinity, and it's, it's incomplete. I'll, I'll say it's wrong, but that might sound a little harsh. It's, it's, it's um, well-intentioned yet incomplete. Uh, modalism is, uh, it comes from the third century, but it's a, it's a form of monarchianism. Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, God manifests himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. So what modalists do is they hold the unity of God together. And the, the modalists just say, well, God at times acts like a father. And then he comes as Jesus, and he is obedient as the Son, and then he comes as the Spirit. It's like he's putting on new masks, and he's playing a new role. And this is, um, this is the, where the analogy, you know what the Trinity is like? It's like, it's like Ryan. Ryan is both a father and a, um, and a brother and a husband. He, he has different roles. But you haven't described three persons. You've, you've described three ways that I relate to certain people. You have not described the plurality of the Trinity. You've still just described one person who has different relationships with different people. This is the one that we are most susceptible to, to thinking, I believe, this is the one I see the most, is modalism. Um, so right below that you see monarchianism. This emphasizes the one principle, or arche, the, monarch, the monarchy of God, such that it denies the personal distinctiveness of the divine Son and the Holy Spirit in relation to God the Father. So you have the various forms of monarchianism. Adoptionism, which says that God the Father adopts, and like adds to the Godhead, but still maintains kind of primacy in the Godhead. Modalism, which means that he keeps putting on um, various masks. And then Sabellianism, you can go and read that there in a little bit. Nature, I hope we, don't, we probably don't need to stop and define monotheism, but I thought I'd put it in there. Um, nature, this is, um, I would say this is the probably another English word for usius or essence. It's it's getting down to the the most basic form of something's existence. So the fundamental properties, the material reality, or the inherent character that constitutes an individual being. In theology, it's used to signify the being of or substance of the three persons of the Godhead, largely synonymous with essence, usia, or substance. Um, then there's the Nicene Creed. I actually suggest that you go and read it this week. Yeah. It is worthwhile. It's probably um, very easy to just Google and read through. Ontology. 
This is the study of nature, or usius, or substance, or essence. This is studying the, the, the root of, um, of, of one's core existence. Usia, so we're on page five, already described that. Panentheism and pantheism, these are, um, panentheism is a view of creation that says that, well, that tree is like God's finger, and then the ocean is his kneecap. It's like, it's all these things, like all of creation sums up to be God. Um, it, it says that God is bigger than creation, but creation is a part of him. Um, how that's different from pantheism, pantheism says nature is God, creation is God, is the divine. And those are, those are um, important ideas that the church is, is dealing with. Patripassionism is the idea that the father suffered with the son on the cross, that the father actually died on the cross. Um, if you remember the movie The Shack, this was my big argument um, against The Shack. Is um, I don't know if it's in the book. I didn't read the book. I read it years ago. I didn't reread it, but I went and watched the movie when it came out last year or early this year, whenever it was. And, uh, and I get what they're trying to do. The movie, the, the, the director or whoever wrote the script or whatever, they, they want us to see that the father suffered. So how is the cross not divine child abuse? How is the cross not an injustice that God just takes out his fury on his son? And they want us to see that the father is very compassionate. And so the, the woman that actually plays the father in the movie, they, they just they pan the, the camera like up her body, and you see that she has holes on her wrist too, as if she were crucified. Now, I don't think that the writer of that book or that movie or anybody involved thinks that the father himself was crucified. But my big concern was that that take, like if, if you just give someone that picture, and say that the father too suffered on the cross. And as if it was a physical suffering, that's patripassionism. And then you have to ask, okay, did all of did all three persons die on the cross? What it is is it just it's I don't know if it really runs anyone down like a road to where they're they're no longer a member of the you know covenant community of faith or they lose their salvation because they believe that it's just dumb. It's just it doesn't, it's not the, the biblical account. The Father did not suffer on the cross. The Godhead suffered on the cross. And there we, we now are, okay, so what's the difference? There is a difference. The Father is one of three persons. Did God suffer? Yes. Did the Father suffer on the cross? No. In fact, the Father abandoned Jesus on the cross. So it gets real complicated when we start switching in and out of person versus essence, or person versus nature, or person versus the Godhead proper. But Patripassionism just says, maybe we should just get rid of all distinctions and say they're all one and the same and the Father suffered on the cross. Um, Jesus was not the Father. The Father was not born of a virgin. The Father did not do ministry in the flesh on earth. The Father did not raise from the grave. Um, and yet there are some who, who would teach such things. Um, Perichoresis is the... Um, the, just a phrase that, that deals, it's, it's taking two ideas of kind of dancing around one another. Um, this is the, the idea <laughs> that each person of the Godhead like coexists with one another without mingling with one another. And yet they hold a single essence. And your faces tell me, yep, that's complicated. But they... Jesus is never, like, mixed with the Holy Spirit. Like, they don't, 
There's not a point where they're confused, where they, they blend together and you shake up the blender bottle and now you have like a, another version, like a, a new thing. Jesus and the Spirit are distinct. Jesus and the Father are distinct. The Spirit and the Father are distinct, and yet they are one. You can see why a lot of people started talking in the first couple centuries of the church and were quickly branded heretics, um, just because it gets complicated. Person, we've already described that. Um, so see essence or substance or usia. Um, psychological model of the Trinity. This is actually one of the things that frustrates me the most about Augustine, um, who, a guy that I appreciate most of what he wrote on the Trinity. Um, but he started to get into a, a way of describing the Trinity as, uh, that was a little bit sloppy. So you're well, welcome to kind of read through that. But I want to get to the back. Subordinationism. Um, this is a, this actually became a rather hot topic last year. Asking the question, um, is, there a, is there a ranking system in the Trinity? So if we have a single God, but we have three persons, is there like a, like are, is, the, is the Father like superior to the Son in some sense? Or is he, does he outrank the Son? Is the Son um, subordinate to the Father? Is the Spirit subordinate to the Father? Now, I would say, the, if I were to go on just Scripture alone, I would say, in their essence, in their ontos, no. <coughs> Functionally, this is where we start talking about the economic trinity, the Son <coughs> subordinates himself to the Father, submits to the Father, and the Spirit to both Father and Son. Does that mean that the Spirit is... Um, in his, in like the, the, the core of his nature, less than the Son? Nope. They're one God, single essence. Of, I don't know how you start to talk about value. Of same rank and value. Yet I believe it's not even at just the incarnation when Jesus submits himself to the Father. I actually believe that he, throughout eternity, has submitted to the will of the Father. Eternal subordination. That's kind of my position. That it wasn't just something that Jesus did when he took on flesh. That this has always been his posture as to do the will of the Father. To submit to the will of the Father. And the Spirit, we see the same thing. So your, the, the subordinationism that is often described is more getting at the ontological subordination, saying that in the Trinity there is a hierarchy. The Father is most important, and the Son and the Spirit are secondary. And that's just, I don't think that that's taught in Scripture. So it's more a matter of um, ontological value versus economical kind of outworkings. In terms of economy, in terms of relation to the world, yes, they subordinate or they submit themselves. In terms of their imminent relationship, no. Substance, we've already talked about that. That's like the fifth word that means the same thing. Um, transcendence, we've talked about that. That's also important. Um, tritheism is what you get if you want to uphold one and two but don't really care about three. Or can't figure out a way to make three work but one and two. Um, if, you, if you're a modalist or if you're an Arian, you probably love the Old Testament. If you're a tritheist, you're probably a big fan of the New Testament and forgot to read the other, the most of the Bible. Um, and so that's kind of the, the complicated. If you, if you don't hold them together, you'll start to favor one side over the other. Um, and then Unitarianism is, uh, is just getting rid of one and two. 
and going with this. So um, let's talk about the analogies. Are there any questions on definitions and important words? And lots of questions we don't want to talk about. Well, a great exercise would be to watch the shack and to just think about, if you have, how many of you have seen the movie? Kind of watch it and, and, and just see how the author tries to relate. And in light of what you've shared tonight, I think it'd be a really good exercise to, to even to ask, what do you think? Like, how do you believe they exist in being, ontology, and how do they exist in function, economy? That'd be a great exercise. And for that matter, any, um, any movie, whether it's a pop culture movie or a kind of a religious movie, so whether it's Passion of Christ or whatever those Steve Carell or Jim Carrey movies that somebody is God in that, right? It's always, what's, a, what's the Shawshank guy? Morgan Freeman. He's always God in whatever movie. I, like, I, I love watching that and seeing where do they, where, like, not only is this silly, but where is their theology incredibly weak? And, and they, I mean, no one can do this well, right? I think the, when Revelation kind of put the period at the end of it, it's like, okay, let's just, let's not add to this. Maybe we can comment on it, but let's not add to this. So, um, but yeah, it's interesting to watch these things and see kind of how are they, um, what, what biblical truths are they willing to kind of put on the chopping block to, to maintain others? So here are the com most common Trinitarian analogies that I'm aware of. Um, the one I hear the most is that the Trinity is like an egg. You have a shell, you have the, uh, the yolk, and you have the whatever the white part is. I don't know. Um, the white. Doesn't that just sound like we like gave up? What is that? That's the white. Like there's not like a technical name for that. No, it's just the white. Why is that not the yellow? I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, the Trinity is like an egg. So here's how the analogy goes. In one egg, you have the white, the yolk, and the shell composing one full egg. So they're looking at there are three parts that compose one whole. I mean, I, I kind of get where they're going with that. But here's the problem. This analogy denies the unity of the Godhead. You've still, I mean, you have one egg. But, like, again, we've got to go back to our theology of God. God is that which cannot be any further reduced. Every egg can be reduced. I don't know anyone here who eats the shell. It can always come down a few notches. I know many of you that are really health conscious that don't like that yummy yellow part. And you go down to just one part of the egg. It can be further reduced. And therefore, it's really not an apt analogy for God. The problem with this analogy is that an egg yolk is, the very, is of a very different substance than, that, uh, than the shell. Also, the egg is made up of three distinct and unlike parts. This analogy teaches the heresy of tritheism. The second one, Trinity is like water. Here's how the analogy goes. The Trinity is like water. Water has three states, solid, liquid, and gas. Although the water changes forms, it is still H2O. Just as water changes forms, so too is the Trinity. Probably our favorite analogy, because we're all modalists. This analogy denies the distinction of the Godhead. So this is exactly the opposite of the problem of the egg analogy. The problem with this analogy is that not, no one molecule of H2O can actually exist as solid, liquid, and gas at the same time. As a result, the water molecule must change forms. A single molecule cannot simultaneously exist in three different states. This analogy actually teaches the heresy of modalism, that God is just changing how he interacts with certain things. 
St. Patrick's favorite analogy, the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. <laughs> By the way, it worked to convert a bunch of Irish people to Christianity. <laughs> so let's not just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Some of these things work. I, my favorite example is I think the Romans Road is actually a really incomplete way of describing the gospel. Yet I know many, many people that have come to real, genuine faith through the Romans Road. Okay, So just because something is insufficient doesn't mean that we got to toss it just need, means we need to kind of appropriately use it. Here's how the analogy goes. The Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. There are three different cloves that represent the three different persons of the Trinity. The problem with this analogy is that it denies the unity of the Godhead. The analogy breaks down because the three cloves are overly distinct and cannot represent the unity of God. As a result, this analogy can easily lead to tritheism in which there are three different gods which might share some like substance. And I've already described the last one that um, the Trinity is like a father, a husband, and a son. That is just modalism. Um, I don't think that these are altogether bad. And when speaking to someone, maybe a, an incomplete analogy with all the proper qualifications alongside of it can be useful. Like this, is, this is a helpful way of maybe just each of, each of these could be a helpful way of beginning to describe the Trinity, and then I would hope that we could quickly come along and say, but that is not, that's not a perfect picture. It's not a perfect picture. Um, I don't know of a perfect picture, but this is probably the closest one I've ever seen. It has its own limits, but this is more of a diagram than uh, an analogy. So, um, the way this is usually drawn is you have a triangle because we're dealing with three. You put God in the middle. And so we put the Father up here. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And then we say, but the Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. It's, it doesn't really do it for me, but it's the best I've ever seen. And this is not mine, but this is just, you have God who is Spirit, God who is Father, God who is Son. They are all simultaneously the same God. There's only one of these. And yet they are not one another. And so you can see why the church leaders had to get together for centuries on end to say, okay, like how do we explain this well? And they're like, I don't know. But I know when it's wrong, so let's kick those guys out. And just keep the rest of us that are willing to admit it's hard. And that's, that's kind of the trinity. So uh, I hope you'll kind of read through a lot of the things that we didn't necessarily cover. But um, the ones that we did cover, um, hopefully you're kind of underlining or putting stars next to those. They will continue to creep up and creep up as we go on and discuss the trinity in this class. Any thoughts or additional comments? Like some of them as you go through, some of them are just like words. And then the other ones are names. And so what I had to do when I was in grad school <coughs> was the difference between like um, Apollinarianism, that's a name. So uh, Arianism, that's a name. Nestorianism, that's a name. Sabellianism, that's a name. 
And then the ones that are like modalism or tritheism, those are more concepts. You don't want to be the guy they name heresies after. Yeah. <laughs> Every one of these guys is, will be forever. They, had, they probably had wonderful like compassion and love for their flocks that they led, and then they made one mistake, and they are just pigeonholed for the rest of eternity. Yeah. So that's all, that always helped me was to try to figure out, is this a guy that got it wrong, and then what did he get wrong? Is this a modalistic tendency? Is this a tritheistic tendency? That kind of helps me. Bring your Bibles next week. We're going to be talking about um, where we see um, some of the evidence for those three things, that God is both three persons and that they are all fully God and that um, there is only one God. We're going to start looking at that as it developed through the Old Testament scriptures. So, um, again, for the next five weeks, we will be face down in the Bible. First week of October, we will not meet. So I think that's like the second Whatever that first Monday in October is, um, we will not meet. So, all right. Got you guys out early this week. We will see you next week. Crack open the door. Do you have We do. They just turned in here. Too hard to see? Yes. Yes, okay. No, I will get... I will. It's just she thought I'd be happy to bring some in. <laughs>